Hey guys, this is Michael and Paul from 60 Day Startup, and today we're going to be talking about how to discover the right business for you and exclusively you to start. It's going to be great. Let's hit it. All right, welcome to episode three of the 60 Day Startup Podcast. Today, we're gonna be talking about how to find the right business for you to launch. Notice that I said for you, because what we're gonna be looking into is maybe not every business is right for every person, and there's gonna be one or at least a handful of businesses that are right for you to launch. You're so nice, you say maybe. I'm gonna go even deeper and say there's definitely one or a couple of businesses that are specifically unique that you and only you can run. Remember when your mother used to say to you that you were a special little flower? Well, this is when we actually get to find out what kind of special little flower you are. That's right. This is like special snowflake syndrome, except the good kind. And this shouldn't be something that stresses you out. Oh, what happens if I pick the wrong one? No, that's not what we're saying. This should be something that's inspiring to you because there is a business out there that exists that cannot exist without you. So that's what we're going to look into today. Let's figure out how to find it. And we have a number of exercises we're going to be running through to find all this information out. So before we dive in, it's going to be easier for you to follow along if you do have these worksheets in front of you. And you can go ahead and get those in the show notes at 60daystartup.com slash podcast. That's 60daystartupallletters.com slash podcast. Let's dive in. Okay, so the majority of today's episode is going to be split up into three lessons that's going to help us find this business or maybe a few options of businesses that are right for us. And those three lessons are, number one, how to find the right business for you to start by discovering your hidden expertise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the things that you have put in the time or the effort you understand way better than other people, you just might not yet be aware of your expertise. For sure. The second lesson we're going to cover is how to make your potential competitors completely irrelevant by focusing on your unique intersection of value. This is where your individual life experience and expertise come together to form a one-of-a-kind niche that no other business can compete on. Yeah. In advertising, we kind of talk about doing this type of thing all the time. If you can find two different things that seem dissimilar and connect them, it gives you way better competitive advantage. For sure. And finally, we're going to talk about how to optimize that business for growth and profitability with the profit grid. Obviously, a business won't last very long if it's not profitable, if it's not offering something of monetary value to keep the engine running. Yeah. And I love this tool. This is something Paul put together that I think is a great kind of exercise to tie everything together. Cool. Well, now that we're all fired up to discover what kind of business we should launch Let's get started. So before we hit our first exercise, the big question here is what makes a successful business, right? In essence, it all kind of comes back to this idea of creating value for your customer, whether you're launching like a small landscaping company, a regional retailer, or some like international technological giant. It all kind of comes back to that principle of creating value for others. 
Exactly. And the first lesson is going to be centered around how finding the right business for you and creating value for others depends on finding out this uniqueness that you can offer that other people can't. So a lot of people, when we talk about starting their businesses, they say, ah, you know, I didn't go to school. I don't have an MBA. I don't have any kind of fancy degree that I can offer to someone. And I'm telling you that that is all crap. Yeah. The truth of the matter is that you do have a specific combination of skills and life experience that will create value that you can share in the lives of other people. Absolutely. And often we find that instead of trying to follow in the path of what other people are doing, if you can look through and start trying to understand this hidden expertise, you can actually have more success. You can make more money by leaning into those benefits and those things that you have that are unique to you as well. So, how do we find what those are, right? Why don't we just dive right into exercise one and talk about it? So, exercise one is going to be discovering your hidden expertise. We have a worksheet for this? Yeah. Like I mentioned before, all the worksheets are going to be available in the show notes and on the site that's at 60daystartup.com slash podcast. And this exercise is called discovering your hidden expertise. Now, what you're going to see in front of you, if you have the worksheet, if you don't, don't worry about it. Just follow along. You're going to have three columns in front of you. So the first column is going to be your unique life experiences. So your like personal descriptors or your identity. And in this column, I want you to put things that sort of define you as an individual. You know, what do my friends say when they introduce me? What groups of people am I involved with or that I identify with? What life experience do I have in general that describes who I am? And this could be things like cultural identity, gender, you know, family role. There's all sorts of things that can go into that bucket. And kind of another thing that you can think about that is maybe a little bit less philosophical than other things here is, you know, what did you put in your Twitter bio? What did you put in your Instagram bio? You know, you have what, like 64 characters describe yourself. What did you put there? This column is going to be full of that stuff that essentially describes who you are. Yeah. For me, maybe this would be like husband, father, entrepreneur, musician, closet gaming nerd. Right. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah. And, and for me, likewise, what kind of life experience did I have that is a little bit different from other people? Well, I'm from the city. Like I was born in Chicago, lived in Pittsburgh for a while. So I'm a city boy. I spent a number of years as a touring guitar player. So there's something interesting. I, for example, like you, am a tech nerd. I love things in tech, you know, so there's all sorts of things that you kind of identify with. Put those in this column and that is going to help you find out what your unique life experience is. Yeah. So let's talk about that second column for a quick second here too. This isn't necessarily just, you know, things that are unique about you, but this is things that are unique about your time, about your interests, what you enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. So that could be maybe ask yourself the question, what would I do if I had like three free hours every week, right? What do I fill that time with if I see this gap of things? What hobbies do I have? And they don't have to be a direct thing or activity like uh, you don't have to be a toy train building hobbyist, right? That could be like connecting with people. Mm -hmm. That could be, you know, drinking coffee. Sometimes this is a necessity, but maybe you're a little bit of a coffee snob, shall we say. Let's make totally. it more of a hobby. I collect beans. I I find the best brewing materials that I can possibly come up with. We have, I know a lot of people like that. But these are all things that you are 
interested in and get you excited and, and amped up, but don't necessarily have to do with like you personally. Exactly. And one of the ways I like to think about this column is, you know, there's different things in my life I know that I do that give me energy. And then there's things that take energy away from me. So sometimes as an introvert, being in large groups of people takes energy away from me, but being by myself gives me energy. Maybe working on a piece of music gives me energy. Mm -hmm. So if something gives you energy or gets you fired up, it belongs in this column. And I think it's worth mentioning that it doesn't have to be all positive things. A problem that exists that really bugs you, maybe something surrounding environmentalism or animals or, or even a business problem, a productivity problem that exists that really bugs you should go in this column because it fires you up. It gets you motivated to do something. That's a great, that's a great idea. I get real fired up hilariously to document processes. Mm -hmm. a strange thing to do, but it's definitely something that I would call, uh, I would drop in this column for me. For sure. And when we talk about sort of the genesis of both of our first companies, we can touch on how this kind of played into that as well. The final column here is the obvious one. Now, we didn't start with this one because mm. this is where people often say, oh, I don't have this. Right. But it's in there because it should play into what value you can offer others. So this is going to be where your technical skills, your educations, and your talents go. If you don't have formal education, that's totally okay. But chances are pretty good that you have some unique gifts that other people notice that maybe you know about yourself. If you're a human and you've lived on the planet Earth for a life, you have some of these skills. We just need to dig into them to find them. For sure. So if you're having trouble coming up with these off the top of your head, ask yourself some of these questions. What do my friends complain about that I find effortless? I know that in my life, that's been like math, doing math in my head. I have some friends that say like, <laughs> what's wrong with you? Why did you just tell me the answer to that? I don't know. That's just something that happened. You sure. know? So what do your friends complain about that you find effortless? What do your friends say that you're great at or ask for advice or help with? I can think of lots of examples for you on that. I know tons of people that come to you for advice on tech things, sure. obviously marketing things. It can be emotional advice too or spiritual advice. Those are all obviously well within the realm of value that you can offer to others. If there's any challenges that you have had to overcome that other people struggle with, maybe unique challenges or large challenges that identify a specific group of people that could go here as well. Yeah, and that's one that I think gets constantly overlooked, especially from people who might find formal education difficult. Maybe you didn't do really well in school. Maybe you have things you've had to overcome, whether it's social or just you know personal in your life that has made learning or developing official, official skills difficult. I often find that those kinds of people develop other skills that are highly, highly valuable simply because they've had to overcome other traits that have not helped them out. And that's where you really define these out. It's somewhere on the spectrum when one thing has been difficult, it's refined you to develop another skill to fight against that. I completely agree. And I think that that has been shown over and over again. I mean, we can all name a number of legendary figures that honestly didn't do that well in formal education yeah. because formal education is for a very specific kind of average person. Yeah. That's They make it to fit the average type of person. Yeah. And you'll find that if you had trouble with it or if it didn't fit you, that you might have a lot of these unique things that really identify you. So, okay, you should have now 
three columns or three little buckets of ideas of things that describe you, but why are we doing this? Is it to feel good or make sure that we do feel like that special snowflake that we talked about earlier? Just because I like writing down lists. (laughs) You do love lists, that's (laughs) for sure. So the answer to the why behind that first exercise plays into what our second exercise is going to be, and that's to identify something that is unique to you. A lot of things we see in the early entrepreneur, the startup space is people talking about what trends or what business models are currently in fashion, whether it's drop shipping or whatever widget is hot. I know that a few years ago, it was frozen yogurt locations. And most of those have gone (laughs) by the wayside, as far as I know. Yeah. So the key here is to not just follow trends and try to figure out what's hot. Well, because when you do, you're constantly chasing that next trend. You're not really developing something that is going to stand the test of time for the long term. Mm -hmm. You might happen to stumble upon that. But what we're trying to help design and develop is something that is unique to you, where you can already knock down that competition and will continue to exist. Right. I heard it put this way the other day, and I love this. So there's basically three eyes of people, contenders in any industry or niche that pops up. There's the innovators. They come first. They sort of identify the market gap, Mm -hmm. and they create a new and unique offering for which they might be the only provider, maybe a, a short list of providers. Yeah. And then you have the imitators. These are very early adopters of trends. These people are having their finger on the pulse and they can come and they can capture a little value and capitalize a little bit on the leftover customers in this new market. And then... It's sometimes the imitators are even the ones that perfect the marketing that the innovators got wrong. Absolutely. That happens a ton of times. So it's not bad to be an imitator. Certainly, especially large companies can come in and capture a lot of value from new markets that get established. Yeah. But the last group, and this is the third eye, these are the idiots, which I know that's probably offensive to some people, but they show up late to this party. These are the people that tried to start frozen yogurt stands last year. Actually, no offense if you tried to start a frozen yogurt stand. Or folks that bought fidget spinners to wholesale after the fidget spinner craze. (laughs) Right. So they showed up late. All of their competition is well-established and entrenched in the market, and it's really unlikely that these competitors are going to achieve any meaningful success. So the cure to this entire problem is making sure that you make your competitors completely irrelevant by relying on your unique life experience and expertise that we identified in the first step. And we're going to even further refine that in the second exercise called the intersection of value. Yeah, this is where we get to draw on stuff. I like this. <laughs> so something that we briefly mentioned before is that no one else in the entire world has the exact same combination of life experience as you. That means that there is singularly unique value that you can bring into the world that no one else can. Sure, maybe some people were born in Chicago like me. Maybe some people were touring musicians like me. But it's unlikely the more that I add into that equation born in Chicago, lived in Pittsburgh, touring musician, loves tech. Has a brother. Has has a brother, decent at math, all these things that sort of identify me. The more that I turn into this personal niche, the less likely that there's even one other person out there that can live in that niche with me. Yeah. So when you create something using this framework, three magical things happen. Number one, you immediately become the only qualified person to offer the solution that your business offers After all, you're the only person in the world that has your unique life experience. 
Yeah, the, the kind of the second one here is that you create this unique market that might honestly be overlooked by some people because they don't have your perception. And it's probably not going to be overcrowded because you're starting from a place of understanding that you have of this life experience and these problems and that kind of thing. And so you might be able to kind of carve a niche without having to go with something big where everybody's fighting over pieces of it right now. Yeah. And the last thing here that happens when you do this is that you build empathy and trust with this niche of people that closely identify with you and your story. And a great example, I think of this is how you got in to start the marketing agency, 12 South, if you want to just talk about that for a second. Sure. Yeah. So I, I have a, a kind of a background in this type of direction too, where I found a number of things that were unique or different about my backstory and were able to start a business and launch a business because of that. I do have a music background. I was a singer songwriter for a good long time. I also, when I wasn't doing that, was bouncing back and forth between agency jobs, learning skills like web design and marketing and video and development and that kind of thing. And together, those life experiences, interestingly enough, framed everything in a way where I went, oh my gosh, the thing that independent musicians just aren't getting good at and have to pay giant amounts of money to do well is marketing. And so when I initially started the agency, it was me coming from a place of empathy, having been an artist, knowing that there was this giant need to help artists understand their business, understand their own marketing and kind of get up on the rails fast and cheap, but not in a bad way, right? Yeah. <laughs> to be sure. able to really go to the MVP of what we need, not build this crazy $20,000, $30,000 thing that no one will ever see and just start scaling it kind of like what we do with businesses now. But that only happened and only came from my background because I had been there as an artist before. I had that empathetic idea. Granted, there were other companies out there trying to service artists from an agency standpoint. But I think honestly, we did well in our first couple of years as a business because we were the only company out there with artists at the helm. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So with that idea, let's look at the second exercise called the intersection of value. So we're going to take our three columns from exercise one, and we're going to make some different combinations of them. We're going to focus on things that are unique to you, focus on things that excite you or problems that really bother you. An example in my life is when I started my first company, Noise Firm. So I had already been a touring guitar player for a while. I was uh, producing some tracks for different artists, and I was really irritated by this problem that was plaguing me, which was just a lack of simple, high-quality sounds that was available to people producing music. Just straightforward, very utilitarian sounds. Mm -hmm. I was motivated by solving that problem, and I established my unique life experience as a musician producer, tech nerd, and the problem that kind of fired me up to launch that company. And because, like with you with the agency, because I had this story that people could identify with. In fact, that's the only thing I had back then. <laughs> I had no budget. I really didn't know anything about marketing. Sure. All I knew is, hey, I have this problem. It really bugs me. Chances are pretty good it bugs other people. Let me try to solve it. And that intersection of value and life experience is what made that company successful. So here our goal is to create at least 10 exciting and intriguing combinations of some of those items from the first exercise and let's write them down. 
A combination can be just one thing from one column. For example, I'm a touring guitar player. But it could be multiple and probably should be multiple things from multiple columns here. So open your mind, let your ideas flow. There's no wrong answer. It could be a wild combination of things that don't seem to make sense on the face of it. Yeah, and I would even say, at least from my perspective, I kind of think the more of these things you can combine, as long as you're not niching yourself so far down that you're solving a problem that no one has, yeah. you're going to be in a better scenario because – Again, if you circle the one thing, Paul, touring guitar player, me, a web designer, or like I have an interest in web tech, you know, that kind of thing, that's a really large pool to pull from. And it's more likely that I have people that are relatively similar to me in that pool. Mm -hmm. But again, if we go and select a couple different things, if we say web tech, like voice student or singer, mm. um, and we maybe grab from some really deep hobby, I don't know, I like journaling, writing, you know, sure. that kind of thing. Then we start going, okay, now we're talking about something that is going to be pulling from a couple of very dissimilar pools and audiences that we can then connect together and find a niche in there that helps me target that audience, understand that audience a little bit better, and know what problems are needing to be solved there. Absolutely. And I think it's important to understand that this second exercise, it shouldn't, I mean, it could be something that uh, you can get done fairly quickly, but I think that you should really spend some time marinating on it. Mm -hmm. Take 20 or 30 minutes after you're done listening to the podcast and just write down some ideas, sleep on it, revisit it over the next couple of days, because I think that some things are really going to open up for you when you start to explore the different combinations. I even ran through this on my own when I was creating it. And I came up with some things that are like, oh, that would be really fun to look into, you know, just yeah. looking at various parts of my identity or my experience. It's just a really cool exercise. Yeah. And you know what? I'm going to totally take a page out of the Marie Kondo book here and say, as you're putting that together, kind of take a gut check and see which of these, quote unquote, sparks joy, mm. right? As you run through it, because that's a good sign as well. As we're pulling these together, if you get a couple that kind of like when you were pulling them together and you went, you know what? That is interesting. I would actually be intrigued to kind of dig a little bit deeper up to see what that might be about. Keep those in the back of your head because we're going to take those to the next step. I love that. And finally, this takes us to the third and final lesson for today. This is how to optimize your business for growth and profitability with the profit grid. Now, obviously, a business won't run for too long if it's not taking in revenue. So this is a very important step. Yeah. I think a lot of people think that these days, if you launch a business, it's pretty impossible to do it without tons of money in investment or huge loans or cash reserves or be independently wealthy or have some sort of fairy god investor or something. Um, the wand comes with it, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. that, that's just bonus. But it really has never been more easy and affordable to launch a business. That's just one of the huge many benefits of the internet yeah. and information. You can start a business today for very little money. And if you set it up right, you can be profitable pretty quickly. And we're all about that here at 60 Day Startup. Absolutely. So to figure out how to do that with each of these different potential cross sections of your interests, we're going to work through something called the profit grid. Yeah. So the profit grid is going to let us look into the future profitability of our business and really help us understand now, before we pour a bunch of time and money into it, whether it is having a good chance of being successful financially. Yep. 
The grid is basically a graph to determine what kind of revenue the business might generate. So if you have the worksheet in front of you, you can take a look. If you don't, just use your mind's eye and imagine what I'm talking about. Um, okay, I can nice. see it. I can see it. I'm in the mood now. Yeah. So from bottom to top, we have the cost of your product or service. And from left to right, we have the amount of people that are in the market for your service. So the cost of product or service to the customer, how much does it cost on the shelf for as a service or whatever? And then from left to right, the number of people that might be interested in it. So this creates four quadrants. In the top left, we have things that cost a ton of money, but also focus on a small niche of buyers. These are luxury items, exclusive items, yeah. things like Lamborghini and Tiffany, exclusive membership clubs, world-class instruction, consultation, stuff like that. Yes, these are going to be like super, super, super big things for the super rich. Right, yeah. for sure. They're not for everybody yeah. on purpose. Exactly. Right. So that would be the top left. That's the luxury quadrant. On the bottom right, we have products that are pretty affordable but appeal to a huge market of buyers. This is most consumer products, iPhone cases, pens, blah, 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 coffee. Socks. Socks. Yeah. Uh, Things that most everyone probably needs to or will purchase, but because of that have a very low cost and maybe a very difficult margin. For sure. Some other sort of digital services could fit in here too, like Mm -hmm. Netflix, Certain kinds of books yeah. and music. So that could go in that category as well. Kind That's, of cons- consumer goods going down here. Absolutely. That's the bottom right. On the bottom left, we have uh, what I'll call the danger zone. These are products that are low priced. <laughs> Q Kenny Loggins. Yeah. <laughs> These are products that are low priced, but also focused on a narrow group of potential customers. I think you can see how this might go awry. Yeah. It's tough to think of too many examples of these businesses since they don't really last very long. But if I had a $10 digital course on underwater basket weaving, that probably would not appeal to too many people. And even if all 20 people in the world that wanted to take that course bought it, I kind of tapped out. That would be it. So, (laughs) I mean, if we really tried, we might be able to find a great niche of underwater basket weavers. But the downside here would be you would never make your money back because it's low priced. Yeah. Something else I want to mention here, by the way, if you have a small niche, but your niche also doesn't tend to have lots of money, Your product probably belongs here too, even if you think it's really valuable. Sure. And this is a tough one. So obviously, Michael and I think of businesses that are surrounding the music business all the time. Yeah. And something that we run up across a lot is the fact that many people that are trying to make it in the music business don't have lots of expendable income. So if we create a product for the quote unquote starring artist, even if we think it's worth $2,000, $3,000... Well, it doesn't really matter because that market doesn't have the expendable income to pay for it. Yeah, it's where you have to get really creative if you are trying to create a tool or a a product that is for that market and find a way to monetize it to a different market. That's why you see a lot of things for artists where it's a data play and Mm -hmm. they're selling that data to another company so that they can actually target the market that they want to. Yeah, so that's a very difficult thing to sit into if you have, even if there is a problem to solve, 
We've seen so many businesses fail when we know there are problems to solve in the music industry simply because monetizing that market is going to be very difficult. Yeah. And the music industry is just one such example of a market like that. I'm sure you can imagine based on your own experience with different markets and industries, whether your market fits into that bucket or not. So be careful of that. Finally, we have the top right corner. This is the promised land. This is the golden goose. (laughs) (laughs) This is where the investor fairy lives. That's right. The the fairy god investors living up here. They've set up shop. This is where your game-changing businesses are going to be because they're high-priced products and they serve a massive market of buyers. Some examples of this could be the iPhone. I think the base model is up to like $1,000 now. And almost everyone I know carries an iPhone. Universities like Harvard and Princeton, perhaps, Mm -hmm. you might think, oh, that really only caters to a small group of people. But the actual market that is trying to get there is pretty huge. So that might fall under that. Some competitors in this market exist because of just a market share. Comcast might be an an example where they know they have a product that is relatively high priced. I know mine is. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And they know that their market is huge. I mean, these days, pretty much everyone sort of needs internet connectivity. But it's been a a very mindful thing to do that, right? Mm. They actively forced to pursue that size of a market to gain that much market share because they know they wanted to be in this quadrant. Right. Something to note about this particular quadrant is that it's a great goal to have, to have your product be up here, but is a very tough quadrant to compete in because of the fact that you are going after large markets, which means inherently that you're not super niched. And if you do build a business that addresses this quadrant, chances are you're going to have to grow to be pretty big to make an ongoing dent in this market. Yeah. So let's take the list of ideas that you generated in the second exercise, the intersection of value exercise, and let's just place them in the different quadrants to which you think that they fit. Yeah. And when you're placing ideas on the grid, maybe consider what form the business might take. Maybe if you're offering, say, a product or a service or something that fits into something different, you know, product businesses, if you're not super familiar, we usually say those are compromised of of either physical or digital goods. So in some scenarios, uh, software could live in here. Mm -hmm. But the benefit of the product business is really that they offer more of a scalable solution than a service business does because you can generally create that product and continue to sell it. But they tend to involve a heavier investment of time and money right at the front end to develop that product, right? Exactly. Scalability is a big benefit of product businesses. If Netflix had a million people sign up tomorrow, they could probably handle it, servers notwithstanding. But that would not shut down their business from a logistical standpoint. Sure. By comparison, service businesses, they're essentially defined by the direct selling of your time, either in terms of labor or expertise. So the amazing thing about service business is that you can kind of get started right away. Yeah. They're pretty quick and affordable to launch. However, since you're selling time or labor, they can be much more complex to scale. So compared to the Netflix example, let's take our agency as an example. Even if we had 20 clients come in the door tomorrow and say, we want to start marketing with you, 
that would be a problem. Sure. You know, because yeah. service businesses are not built to scale on a dime like that exponentially at a moment's notice. That would require, with most service businesses that I can think of, the acquiring of more people, of more uh, yeah. human capital. And that is complex. Yeah. At any point, either a product or a service business is going to have to scale people. Mm. It just depends what's the thing you have to scale first. In product businesses, it might be technology and partners. But in service businesses, it's almost 100% of the time going to be people that you first have to scale. And that gets exponentially more complex the more people you add to it. Right. And that's not to necessarily discourage you from starting a service business because we know lots of very successful service businesses. Yeah. In fact, the agency is a successful service business. So it's certainly a great model to get started with. It's just something to think about as you're looking at these ideas on your grid and understanding what the future growth, what the future profitability and the direction of that growth might be based upon the potential cost or price of the product or service and what audience it sits to, right? If this is a high priced service and I'm serving a large amount of people, okay, is it actually priced high enough that I'm going to be able to scale my people Mm. up large enough to be able to serve the people that this might demand, right? That's where you get the giants like Comcast and the amount of people that they employ. If it's a service and it's serving less people, is this in the top or, or the bottom of that grid, right? Is it priced to the point where I can actually afford to scale it? Mm. Or is it priced so small that it's really going to be a service business that's just me? And also, man, it might own my time because of that. Right. Absolutely. So once you're done with this exercise and putting your various businesses in the quadrants, look at what you have. Chances are pretty good that you'll have maybe a couple in each quadrant. And the ones you want to pay attention to are in that top left, that luxury quadrant, the bottom right, the mass market quadrant. And if you do have some in the top right, that golden goose quadrant, let's call it, that's amazing. But also be honest with yourself about what it would take to actually serve that business. Yeah. Those are the ones that if you can find a way to get them off the ground and get them off the ground quickly can be fantastic. But I also think set you up for a lot of work and potential failure. The top left and the bottom right are going to be much easier to get up on the grounds and get up on the rails quickly. Cool. So we finished up here. We now have a list of real businesses that you can start. And not only that, but these businesses, as we talked about in the beginning, are uniquely suited to your expertise and experience. And they need you to launch them in order to exist and bring value to the world. So let that motivate you to get started and launching right away. What we covered today is the three lessons we're going to go through. That's discovering your hidden expertise. We are talking about finding the combination of that expertise that makes you unique with the intersection of value. And finally, talking about how we can build our business for growth and plan for profitability with the profit grid. These three things should help you identify your best one or maybe a couple businesses to start exploring and get started right away. Yeah. 
As always, thanks for joining us. If you guys have thoughts or questions or want to hit Paul or I up, we're available uh, on Facebook and Twitter at 60 Day Startup. All of the resources we talked about on the show are available on our website and they're linked in the show notes at 60daystartup.com forward slash podcast. And you know what? If you dug what you heard today, make sure to give us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts. It helps us reach more people so we can help more entrepreneurs grow their businesses. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time on 60 Day Startup. 